Hey there, welcome to Blockhead, the Peanuts tribute podcast from a cartoonist's point of view. My name is Jeff Grogan, and I will be your host for the next few minutes to talk about Peanuts, Charles Schultz, and all things Charlie Brown, Linus, Lucy, and Snoopy too. So sit back and enjoy. Blockhead listeners, welcome to a new episode. Today we've got Brian Walker, part two on the show, and you are in for a treat because Brian Walker is just a great storyteller, and boy, has he got some wonderful stories to tell. And we will get to that momentarily. First, I just wanted to say, hey, this is the 50th episode. 50 episodes in the can. Wow. That's unbelievable. Two years ago, I started this project. I really didn't know what to make of it or where it would go. uh, And I had no idea that I would get this far as I have with it. And uh, thank you all for listening and encouraging me to continue. I'm glad you enjoy it and get something out of it. And I've heard from so many of you who, who really say that you do enjoy the show. And what's even better is most of you are cartoonists. And uh, a lot of you say that you're inking while you're you're listening. And uh, that makes me really happy. I'm so pleased. So here we are, 50 episodes. I hope that there'll be another 50 and maybe more beyond that. I will do my best (laughs) to make sure that happens. So, uh, okay, 50 episodes. Wow. Thank you to our newest Patreon supporter, Uh, Ray Rapizzi, Ray Rapizzi Jr. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, Ray, wherever you are. Thank you so much. Boy, oh boy. Ray joined us in July. I had no idea uh, because I haven't checked my Patreon page in so long because I've been so overwhelmed with everything uh, as we all are these days and I'm I'm really just I to begin with I'm the worst with social media I always have been and I guess I will continue to be it's a, a, a personality trait that has not changed since social media came along and and even knowing that cartooning success at go comics and and even with the stuff I'm doing now spiking the lens and whatever all depends upon it I cannot get myself motivated every night to put up an Instagram post it takes about 20 minutes to to format a comic strip to put up and and it's like pulling teeth to get me to do it to tear me away from the work I'm doing whether it's working on this comic book I'm working on or my animation or uh, doing schoolwork which is just taking up an unbelievable amount of time Teachers everywhere are going through this right now with uh, transferring their courses online. I think every teacher I know is is just doing this heavy lift, this this project that should normally have taken a year to do, uh, is people are doing in a matter of weeks, and uh, it's just it's 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 all encompassing and overwhelming. It's like a tsunami of of things that have to be done in order to move a course online. I know for myself, it just it's just been like a tidal wave overwhelming me. And I'm trying to keep up with it as best I can and get ahead of it as best I can, but it's really hard. Still, despite all the work, I am grateful for this technology and grateful for the opportunity to be able to teach my courses online because uh, we would be lost without it at this point. Uh, 
because this this uh, pandemic has been so so devastating to so many people. Everybody involved, from teachers uh, to administrators to parents, everybody's struggling with this. Uh, I know it's hard for parents as much as it is for teachers uh, because of the scheduling conflicts and all of those issues. We are all trying our very best to work through this pandemic and continue to bring quality education to our students. Lest you think we spend all of our time on these noble pursuits, the, the edification of our youth and the uh, promotion of cartooning as an art form, uh, no, no, that is not all we do. We, we also have been, this year, we have been inundated. We have a mouse problem. We have a big mouse problem. We've been here 13 years. We've never had such a mouse problem. Every time we turn around, there's more evidence of mice. In a country house, I don't know, it's an 1850 farmhouse, so there are lots of gaps and lots of holes. And every day, you know, we are plugging another hole with steel wool or foam. We don't put down traps. We don't do poison. We don't do any of that stuff. And, of course, we have three cats, and the three cats won't do a thing. Of course, you know, one of them just could care less about mice. He's, he's older. He's, he's, his fascination with mice <laughs> seems to be done. He's happy just to eat every piece of food that we give him. He's a big, fat, happy cat. And then we have another younger cat who's just too innocent to know about mice. He doesn't, he doesn't know what to do with them when he finds them. <laughs> and then the third cat who just could, she just wants to watch them anymore. Um, she's older too, and she, she doesn't have any teeth anymore. So she just watches the mice. And so three cats, and there's a mouse party going on. And the cats, you know, won't do anything about the mouse party. And we can't, we can't, get a handle on it and every day we're sticking more steel wool in in a hole here and there and foam and and put clogging up you know gaps under doors with sweeps and you name it we're trying it and we think we've got it licked one day and oh yeah there's a hole there fill that one on the ceiling oh okay there's one there under the dishwasher oh you know we've got it now and then no of course not the next day more evidence more mice, and, and that's what we're doing. So, uh, but, you know, we hope you wish us well in our endeavors. <laughs> you know, the mouse could live, the mice could live out in our barn. We have a nice big barn out back, and, and you know, they could live out there. We, we don't mind. That's fine. Go live in the barn. Chew on my old artwork if, if you want something to eat. And, but, um, but no, they have to be in here. So, uh, yeah, so the, the fight goes on, and we will continue to try to secure our home. <laughs> so the time that I come away from that to work on my own work and then to break away to do an Instagram post is just like almost, oh, my God, I can't do it. And, and so the same thing is true with my Patreon page. I haven't checked it in, in so long, and then lo and behold, I go, and Ray's there. And Ray, thank you so much uh, for everything you're doing to help the show. And I will do my best to make sure I get more shows to you, another 50. So here we go. Uh, you know, another thing that was, strikes me listening to the show, if you listen to all the way you'll, through, you'll find out, at the end, I'm stunned to find out that uh, when I was in my early 20s, late teens, living with my parents, uh, I'd quit school and, and come back uh, from Philadelphia and lived with my folks for a little while, like a lot of young 
uh, folks will do when they're trying to figure out their lives. And uh, I was minutes away in the same vicinity as Brian Walker and the Walker family and so many other cartoonists that I had no idea. I mean, I was doing figure drawing at uh, a local artist guild in Connecticut and I was across the street from Brian Walker's studio, probably, and and who I had no idea. It's just so funny. Uh, I mean, it strikes me as just one of those odd circumstances, you know. You know, you have no idea who you're walking past when you walk down the street sometimes, and or who's in your orbit that you don't know about. And there's that idea that, and I don't know where I got this from. I, I read it somewhere years ago, and I'm not a physicist, but there's this idea that these molecular patterns stay close to one another through eternity. They, f they, they gravitate towards one another and travel within the same circles. So the people you know in this life might be the same people you knew in different form in a different life. And you're all traveling within, because your molecular patterns are traveling in these same, same gravitational field. And so you're, you move in and out you know, of life around the same patterns. And it's just kind of interesting to me that a lot of cartoonists who I've actually kind of connected with through the internet now and through this show uh, were there maybe in Connecticut and elsewhere. And I, I traveled around within their circle and never had any idea. Uh, and it makes me wonder, you know, if I had walked across the street and, and knocked on the door of Brian Walker's studio, what I might have learned as a, a young cartoonist trying to find his way in those days. Anyway, it's just an interesting thing to think about. Uh, what does it all mean? I don't, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but uh, I am so glad and so happy to have the benefit now of connecting with all of these, these great cartoonists who I've, many of whom, I've admired for so many years and and now through this show uh, and through your support as listeners and, and some of you as sponsors, uh, I have the opportunity to connect with them through this vehicle and I'm, I'm so thankful for that because um, the benefit to me is just so great and I, I, I hope it is for you too. Uh, it's nice to think that um, that I'm doing it on one hand for myself and I'm doing it for you too. And uh, makes me happy. Anyway, uh, so I am I am blessed. And uh, and what a great way to celebrate 50 shows, but with one of the greatest comics historians and curators and and figures in the world of comics. Uh, th throughout, right? Uh, Brian Walker. I mean, he's been involved in so many things that have touched all of us who love comics and cartooning. And he's had a hand in so many important, important things, whether it's, you know, the Billy Ireland Museum, which he had so much to do with and getting off the ground and uh, or the IDW Library of American Comics, which he's such a big part of, or Beetle Bailey and High and Lois. Uh, just so many things that the Walker family has been involved with, that Brian has been involved with, that mean so much to us who love comics and who endeavor to work within this field. Uh, anyway, wow. Thank you all for being a part of this. 
for 50 shows. <laughs> and thank you, Brian, for uh, your participation. And, uh, and to all of those who, who have been a part of the show so far, there's so many names. People I never would have had the courage to reach out to when I was younger, uh, who I, I've fortunately been able to connect with through the show, from you know Ray Billingsley to Lynn Johnston to uh, Tahid Bondia to uh, Ron Ferdinand and Marcus Hamilton and John Rose and, and down and down the list. There's just so many people I'm so grateful I've had the chance to connect with. Thank you all. So let's get to it. Brian Walker. And part two, and uh, here we go. Brian and myself in conversation. You know, I, I want to talk more about um, the strips, but while we're on the topic of interesting people in comics, I mean, you you were surrounded by interesting cartoonists growing up in, in Connecticut, right? Uh, right? I mean, that whole Connecticut, uh, there's a wonderful book by Colin Murphy called uh, Cartoon County. Right. And um, so you, you there are a whole host of people that you grew up around who were, I mean, some of the top tier cartoonists in the world, right? I mean, Stan yeah. Drake and and John Cullen Murphy and, and some of the others. Do you have any uh, memories of those guys growing up or that community? Oh, absolutely. I mean, Dick Brown used to say, it was the golden age of cartooning. In <laughs> 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 and those guys were like, you know, John Cullen Murphy was my godfather. Oh, wow. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I, I, I describe myself as a recovering Catholic, but, you know, back when I was, uh, when first communion and bad, you know, confirmation confirmation yeah the murphys were my godparents and uh you know dick brown performed my wedding ceremony when i got married <laughs> in 1981 we found out like you can have anybody you want marry you as long as there's a justice of peace there as a legal witness so we said well, let's have dick brown marry us that'll be fun and <laughs> so it really was like an extended family and and certain other like like Cullen Murphy is the same age and we've known each other for forever, you know, and when he started working on that book, originally it was an article for Vanity Fair and he called me up and said, could you help me with this and fact check it and like, you know, send me some images and everything. And so we worked together, you know, he lives in Boston and my son lives up there. So we see each other quite a bit. And we weren't real close friends growing up because he went to a different school than I did. And I think he was, you know, he was always, my parents were always saying, why can't you hang out with guys more like Cullen Murphy instead of <laughs> degenerate hippies that you hang out with? You know, Cullen said, well, I wasn't that much of a goody goody, but, you know, <laughs> but for whatever reason, that thing sat in, at Vanity Fair for a couple of years without ever getting published and then Colin called back and said well now I've got a contract and Colin's written a lot of really good books and he's he's a very erudite scholarly guy you know he said I'm going to do a whole book a sort of a memoir of my father but kind of branch off into the whole Connecticut years and all these cartoonists and everything so you know back and forth uh, I mean it's his book but I did work with him a lot on it. I proofread the manuscript and talk with him about it a lot. And it was just a fun project to, to work on. In fact, I seem to be doing that a lot lately these days with, with Michael Tizeran's book. Um, you know, I helped him with that and proofread it for him. And it's, it's fun. I, I just love research and I love how someone goes about 
finding the information. I mean, Michael Tisran, when he first told Patrick McDonald introduced me, who Patrick and Karen did the first major book on Harriman back in the 80s. Mm. And they oh, had, I that. yes, I have that book. Oh, it's a great book. Yeah, that's actually Abrams' book, too. Yeah. And um, Patrick said, I want to introduce you to this guy, Michael Tisaran, who lives in New Orleans. This is when the National Cartoonist Society, Rubens, was in uh, New Orleans. And he's going to write a biography of George Harriman. And I said, well, good luck with that. Nobody even knew who this guy was when he was alive, let alone, you know, 100 years later or something. So uh, I was willing to help with Michael. I said, but let's stay in touch. I, I can't wait to hear what you find out. And so he would just call me every once in a while. And said, so I found the original lodge where the family used to hang out. And I found some guy in L.A. that Harriman picked up hitchhiking and stayed at his house for a while. And, oh which, you know, it's just great to hear how he how he researched the book. Well, there was there's so much information in that book that is kind of obscure. Yeah. Uh, you know, as you were saying, very little was known about Harriman yeah. and he seems to uncover all of this detail, which is really quite overwhelming. I mean, yeah. it really paints a very vivid picture of yeah. Harriman's life and New yeah. Orleans too. Yeah. But anyway, well, anyway, back to your original question about Connecticut. I mean, <clears throat> so, you know, these guys used to play golf together all the time and uh they th my father started the connecticut cartoonist invitational golf tournament which he ran for like 50 years or something and there were times when they you know the the winner would get a pie thrown in his face and then there was a i started going to these when i was working at the museum and i've never really been a very good golfer but it was fun because after dinner they would get up and tell jokes and of course that generation my father's generation they all could do jokes i don't know how you know we don't do that anymore but these guys all had these jokes memorized and stan drake who was a very good looking guy and kind of a frustrated actor was the best joke teller of all you know and people would beg him like tell us the one about the little boy and the you know and the prostitute or something like that. Uh -huh. He'd get up and he'd do voices. And, you know, he could take a five-minute joke and stretch it out for 20 minutes. And people would be begging him to tell it again. Wow. And uh, it was about 92. Um, I was at a National Cartoon Society, uh, once again, a Reuben in Scottsdale. And the president, uh, Bruce Beatty, they were just starting these chapters all around the country. I think it was Mel Lazarus that came up with this idea. So it was a California chapter and a Florida chapter. And I said, how come there isn't a Connecticut chapter? We've got more cartoonists in Connecticut. Bruce Beatty looked at me and says, I think you just volunteered to start one. <laughs> so, I hate to say this. I'm still the chairman of the Connecticut chapter. Oh, After 25 some odd years, I got, I handed it off to a, uh, cartoonist Maria Scrivan for a couple of years, but then she just got busy and so it got fell back into my lap. Oh, uh, man. <laughs> um, it's about open mouth, insert foot, and you know, oh my gosh, that's great. In the, in the early years, you know, Stan would come to some of our meetings, but then he wasn't showing up. And mm -hmm. I called him up and said, Stan, you know, we got to get you to come to one of our dinners. You know, uh, he said, Well, Brian, he said, I'm working on Blondie now. And my schedule is that I basically stay up all night doing Blondie strips. And then 11 o'clock, I go over to Glenn's, which is a bar in the middle of Westport. 
as soon as they open up, I go in, I sit at the bar all afternoon, <laughs> I have my lunch, I go home to my condo and I'm asleep at six o'clock. And then I get up at midnight and I start working on this trip. So I can't come to your dinners because because I'm asleep. That's my schedule. So Chance Brown and I said, how can we get Stan to come to a meeting? And Chance said, well, let's give him an award. <laughs> You'll have to come. <laughs> so we created this award called the Legend Award. Okay. We, made a, we made a plaque. Uh-huh. And we, we <laughs> a room at the Reading Roadhouse, which is a, a really great little sort of roadhouse bar up in up up in Connecticut in the woods. And Stan had done these really fantastic portraits of cartoonists. I don't know if you've ever seen any of them, but there, some of them have been reproduced in books. Mm-hmm. And some of them were old time cartoonists like Milton Kniff and E.C. Seagar and Al Cap and Walt Kelly, Charles Schultz. But also a lot of his friends like Dick Brown and my father and Bill Yates. And, you know, and his his portrait of Dick Brown is the best portrait ever because he knew Dick so well. They were such close friends. And it's Dick laughing, you know. So we gathered together all of those portraits from a lot of them came from Stan and from other places. Some of the cartoons just brought them in their car and we hung up probably the I think we had about 25 of them hanging up in the in the bar. There was a like an upstairs room and Stan showed up and told jokes and had everybody crying with laughter. His sons were there and Stan had such a good time that he decided to donate all of the portraits that he had in his possession to the Billy Ireland of of Ohio State. Actually, it was originally to the museum in Florida and then they eventually ended up at at Ohio State. And then he got real sick a couple months later and, and died. Oh, <laughs> probably the oh. last time i saw him oh wow you know i just pulled up uh on my ipad the portrait of dick brown by stan drake and it it's marvelous it's really something it's the one he did great. of my father is i think is the best portrait anybody ever did of my father oh i'll have to pull that one up too that's great i mean how you know stan drake my god how many comic strips did stan drake work on over the years well you know he did the heart of juliet jones right uh, for many years uh and uh and then he worked on blondie but did he work on little orphan annie did he do that too that was leonard star oh that was leonard star okay yeah he was another connecticut guy and john prentice um who took over rip kirby from alex raymond yeah yeah Alex raymond to live in stanford in fact he he got killed in a car accident with stan drake stan drake survived but alex raymond died yeah that was that i remember that that was like uh, i mean that's amazing uh, it's a, an astounding story i mean it's, yeah it was right there in westport wasn't it yeah the, yeah. the uh, idw books which is the library of american comics which is edited by dean mulaney uh, mm-hmm. i worked on probably over a dozen of those books with dean and uh they did the whole rip kirby series I think they're still yeah. they're into this well into the seventies into the John Prentice period, um, but I researched all the introductions and um, you know once again I just love research and tracking things down and pictures of Alex Raymond's original house that he had in uh, in uh, in Stanford and I actually went and drove the road where the accident happened. Oh wow! 
I saw the tree that they ran into and oh wow you know my wife does um she's a a crafts person she makes hats and and clothing and and things and often does a show in westport at a high school up there and um it's a big craft show um in westport and so we drive around these little back roads and they're tiny windy roads yeah and we've got we've always got this big trailer behind us because we're we're bringing her display unit and all this stuff along with us and uh but those little roads they're like this the tiny little things i mean with a lot of stone walls all over the place yeah and uh, really easy, I could see if you're, you know, not really paying attention and you're going a little too fast, boy, uh, it wouldn't be hard to, you know, find yourself in an accident like that. Well, um, you know, Stan, who is also a storyteller, and, and R.C. Harvey said one time, cartoonists are probably the least reliable sources for accurate historical information <laughs> because they're storytellers. And yeah. They, they, you know, that's what they do. They make stuff up. And if they can make it up better and tell a bigger story and get a <laughs> laugh out of it. And so I mean, my father did that, too. You know, he, he had these stories. I said, Dad, you got to stop telling that story. Why not? It's not true. He said, why do you not <laughs> even alive? You know, so I get these big arguments with him. But Stan started going around telling people years later that Alex Raymond was trying to commit suicide. And that he he was having an affair and he was he was married to a Catholic woman, so he couldn't get a divorce and he was really unhappy. And there's a, a guy, Arlen Schumer, who is this kind of a cartoon historian, wrote an article for I think it was Hogan's Alley based on Stan's story. Uh-huh. And in the course of researching the IDW books for Dean Mullaney, I found the daughter of of the guy who was Alex Raymond's assistant when the accident happened. Okay. Found some of his letters. And this guy said, this story about Alex Raymond committing suicide is complete hogwash. There's no truth to it whatsoever. Uh, Uh He was a a religious man. He was, he was having an affair, but he would have never done this, particularly with Stan in the car, in Stan's car. Yeah. He said, this just whole idea is ludicrous. So in in the introduction to that particular last, you know, I think it was 1956, the last of the Alex Raymond books, I I wrote what I consider the definitive story based upon primary research material. And uh, there's pictures of this guy in the, I think it was a, it was a Bugatti, it was an Italian racing car that Alex Raymond had. He used to go up to some of these, uh, was it Lime Rock and race cars and stuff. Uh, so all that stuff just fascinates me. I mean, I, I could, you know, it, that's why when Cullen wrote the book about the Connecticut cartoonist, I said, it's just, it's great that somebody put this down for the historical yeah. record and, and for the, for posterity and nobody better to do it than Cullen Murphy, I think. Oh, beautiful uh, book. Yeah. Beautiful. I really enjoyed it. And anybody who loves comics and cartooning, uh, you know, you pick that book up and and it's almost like it left me feeling a little melancholy afterwards, um, you know, because this very sweet memoir was over and a period of time had come to a close. It reminded me in a little way of the ending of, um, I know this sounds kind of a silly comparison, but it reminded me of the ending of Hemingway's A Movable Feast, you know, yeah. uh, where he laments, you know, uh, the passing of time and, and uh, you know, recalls. The story that he tells at the end that Dick Brown told him, 
Dick Brown said he was talking about the Connecticut era in general. He says, I get the feeling like when I used to go to the movies and the movie's over and you stand up and the credits are rolling and you start walking out of the movie theater, you know, the movie's over. He says, that's the way I feel about those that period of time when we were all together here in Connecticut. And it's just, Cullen tells that at the end of the talk that he gives and everybody just gives it goosebumps, you know? Yeah. Uh, Cause that, you know, time passes. I mean, John Cullen Murphy, like I said, was, a, was my godfather and he was the sweetest guy. And, but like so many of those guys, he was also really smart and he knew all about history and, and baseball and, you know, all kinds of stuff. <laughs> boxing you know he could just go on and on about any subject uh same with dick brown i mean he could talk history and and um i remember talking with john prentice one time at the at the museum and found out that he he was at pearl harbor when the japanese bombed really i'd get into the into these world war ii stories with some of these guys who were, were very reluctant to talk about it um and, uh, yeah, my best friend's dad was a, a vet from World War II, and he never spoke about it. Yeah. I mean, they, it was just something that they didn't uh, want to go into or just sort of, it was past. Life, yeah. life went on. Although my best friend's dad, uh, as he got older and the kids grew up and were off on their own, he and his wife did a tour of, you know, all of the places he was stationed overseas yeah. uh, during World War II. So it, it stayed with him, but he yeah. just didn't want to talk about it. Yeah, and my father was in, in Italy during World War II, but he never saw any real combat or anything. But mm-hmm. uh, there was a cartoonist in Connecticut, Mel Casson. I think that he used to do a strip called Mixed Singles, which became Boomer. Uh, he did some oh, strips, yeah. And he okay. was he was kind of like a like a uh, kind of a dandy kind of guy. He you know he he wasn't gay or anything. He you know he, you know he he had a beautiful wife, but. He always used to use the, wear these sort of colorful sweaters, and he, he was a little fussy and fastidious and stuff. And I said, he's kind of a funny guy, you know. And when he died, I went to his memorial service in Westport. And, he, you know, he's one of these guys that just died in his sleep, and you know, <laughs> after playing tennis. Uh, yeah. And there were all these military guys there, and they had this box, this display case of all of his medals. And what I found out, I never knew this, that he landed at D-Day, his commanding officer was killed instantly. He was, a, I think, a corporal or something. So he had to take command of his unit. And they fought oh their God. way off the beach and, and through northern France into Belgium. And the army sent a letter and said, so we're going to relieve uh, Corporal Casson. We're going to send over a new commanding officer. So all the guys in his unit put together a petition and sent it in and said, no, he's our, he's our leader. We want you. To, we want to keep him here. And the guy at the memorial service, this was probably ten or fifteen years ago, pulled out the letter that all these guys had signed and showed it to us. And wow. I was just, I had goosebumps. And so Mel oh, became yeah. the commanding officer. He he probably could have gone home at that point. And he took that unit all the way in, and they liberated Dachau, uh, the concentration oh. camp. Oh my God! What a story. And here's this what? guy that I thought was a little like, you know, a little on the light side. And it turned out he was a war hero. He had, I think he had a purple heart and a distinguished service cross and all these things. Was he uh, discharged as a corporal or did they raise uh, his rank? I think he probably was like a lieutenant or something by the time. By the time. 
Yeah. Oh my gosh. Wow. What a story. It's incredible. But you know, I mean, yeah. The, and a lot of these guys carried that stuff around with them and never, never spoke about it. It's yeah. really uh, kind of mind boggling. Bill Gallo, who is another good friend, is in more of a New York guy, but he was another one of my favorite cartoonists because I'm I'm also a big sports fan, and of course he was the sports cartoonist for the Daily News for forever. Yeah, yep, uh, yep. He survived Iwo Jima. And, oh uh, wow, I didn't know that. This is incredible, you know. But yeah. that's interesting. All those guys were World War II vets. Is really big generational shift from the cartoonists of mid 20th century to to those who came, you know, after Gary Trudeau, you know, 1970 yeah. or so. I mean, when, when the younger generation uh, sort of took over, I mean, it's real big shift. Um, yeah. you know, as you talk about this life in Connecticut and all of these, these really incredible stories, uh, I, I, I think I can't help but think that, you know, the profession is very different now in a way, at least in terms of its social life. Yeah. I think there's, um, you know, uh, Back back to a question that you'd ask earlier in terms of the transition after my father died, you know, that that my brother Greg and I had worked, you know, with my father for so many years. Um, yeah. And a friend of mine, Chuck Green, who used to work at the Museum of Cartoon Art, said, you know, after my father died, he called me and offered his condolences and said, I said, but, you know, I don't buy into this. I'm sorry for your loss, which is sort of the phrase that people say. I never felt the mm-hmm. loss. I felt like a, you know, my father was ninety-three years old for Christ's sake. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> golf about a month and a half before he died, yeah. and he was still working yeah. right at the end. Um, he said, "You know how lucky you are to have spent virtually your entire working life with by your father's side. You know, going back to the museum and then starting in the eighties, working with him on comic strips and all these other projects and." just, you know, talking to him on the phone every other day and going over to the studio and sharing friendships with his friends and my friends. And I said, you're right. You know, he, he, Chuck's father died when he was in high school and he was denied all that. So, yeah. so I think Greg and I had been doing this for so long. And, you know, to be honest with you, even in my father's later years, uh, we were definitely picking up the slack. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, and, you know, he was still very much working full, t- you know, on the strip full time all the time because that's who he was. Uh, but, you know, we were we were very well trained and tutored and mentored all along for 30 years or more. And so mm-hmm. I think it was a pretty seamless transition. And then my younger brother, Neil, who had worked on comic beetle comics for the scandinavian markets and stuff kind of stepped in and he he'd been doing some but now he's pretty much doing the penciling and greg's doing the inking and all three of us are writing it uh-huh and uh you know and it's, it's like a well-oiled machine i mean you guys know yeah. what you need to do every day and and what needs to get done and how to do it and yeah uh, we haven't I, had any you know complaints or cancellations or anything people seem to <laughs> Except well, what it is, you know, Beetle is still in what? I mean, how many papers? Over fifteen hundred papers, or something, yeah, something like that. I mean, I think at one point it was probably in eighteen hundred papers. It's probably more like in sixteen hundred now. You know, but we haven't had any. You know, there, there, there's some strips in the last ten 
15 years or so that had kind of gone off a cliff, you know, and lost a lot of subscribers. And, and uh, we pretty much held our list. Um, you know, we've got really great international sales. My father used to say just the Scandinavian market alone could probably keep us going. Uh-huh. For, for uh, well, Beatles really big in Sweden, right? I mean, there's a comic book and yeah, huge. Yeah, just I mean, emailed with our editor in uh, in Norway today, and they're going to do a whole magazine on the seventieth seventieth anniversary of Beetle Bailey, which is this year. And uh, I I went over there a couple years ago to Denmark, and my father was still alive at that point but he really wasn't traveling and so they brought me as the surrogate and they treated me like first class literally plane ticket over there really nice hotel with me and my wife we spent like three or four days in copenhagen then we went to a comics festival and uh there was a line you know 100 people long waiting for you know for autographs and drawings and stuff it's incredible yeah I mean, what what would make Beetle Bailey so popular in in Sweden and Denmark and and Scandinavia? I mean, what it it's kind of it's an Amer it's very American, it seems to me, Beetle Bailey. Yeah. And uh, so the idea of it translating, you know, to a different culture uh, is kind of surprising to me. Yeah, and I think you know it, it it's in Den- Denmark, Finland, Sweden, and Norway. It's all in different languages too. Yeah, um, and I my take on it is originally I was told Sweden has universal conscription, so all people of a certain age serve in the army, including women. Okay, for, for like a year or something, and they don't fight in in any wars, so they're basically like a camp swampy. They're they're you know they're peeling potatoes and washing dishes and stuff like that. So they can kind of identify with what goes on in Beetle Bailey, but that doesn't necessarily explain the other countries so much. Uh, Somebody in Denmark told me that they're so family oriented in Denmark that they consider Beetle like a family and certainly with high and lows as well. Mm -hmm. So they like, they like the, the unity of it, the community of it. Um, and the other thing is, I think King Features had a fairly uh, successful licensing program going back to the 1950s. Uh, some guy brought me in Denmark, like a comic book from the 1950s that had just beautiful reprinted Beetle Bailey Sunday pages in it. He said, I grew up reading this, you know, uh, I've been reading it ever since. I love it. Oh, so it's fantastic. From- some history there, I think, that explains it a little bit. Um, do you do you know of a guy by the name of Henrik Kim Rare? Oh yeah, um, I was with an illustrated trip. <laughs> oh, you were okay, yeah, because Henrik does. Uh, I've known Henrik for a little while, and uh, um, he was a contributor to a, an anthology that we did back in about ten years ago. A friend of mine and I did, and um, Henrik uh, does these beautiful. Beetle Bailey uh, yeah. illustrations for yeah. I guess for those magazines right I see them on his Instagram feed all the time and they're they're really great uh, oh, no. and and a, a little freer I mean with you know subject matter it seems oh, no they do those sexy Miss Buxley calendars over there which we love you know they won't let us do yeah. that kind of stuff over here but you know <laughs> no, Hendrick's a good friend yeah it's great stuff 
Uh, and it is it is really kind of interesting. But I mean, I mean, it's great that it translates and reaches. And, you know, the idea of family, it's kind of interesting, too. But, yeah, the military base, Camp Swampy, it is home to all of these characters. They've lived there for 70 years now. Uh, so it is a kind of family that we've all kind of known and grown to love over the years. Um, do you, do you have any favorite characters to write for? I mean, are any of the characters more, or any combinations of the characters more fun to write than others? Uh, in Beetle Bailey? Yeah. Um, well, certainly Sarge is the heart of the strip, I think. I um, think so too. Because he, you know, he, I think with so many of the characters, they're multifaceted. In, in fact, they, you know, they, most of them started off stereotypical and then eventually developed other traits. Uh, Sarge was just a hard ass in the beginning. You know, he mm-hmm. just yelled and, and it was, it, there was, there was a, a sergeant that my father had in basic training. His name was Sergeant Savu. And he would yell and scream at the, at, at my father and his friends. And then they would, on the weekend, they go into town one time and they came back and they found all, they all had little notes pinned to their pillows. And it said, to my boys, love Sergeant Sabu, you know. And that's the key to Sarge's personality is that he's, he's a tough guy, but he's got a soft heart. And the soldiers that are under his command are like his family, you know. And uh, so there's a there's a lot of wealth of gags in, in all of that you know and you know sarge is, is kind of shy around girls and he likes to eat and he's got his dog and you know he's kind of a regulation guy but he kind of slacks off himself sometimes and there's just so much you can do with him uh i really like zero uh, mm-hmm. in the of it but i have a hard time writing gags for him you know just to to kind of figure out how he would misinterpret something, you know, you have to almost sort of dumb yourself down to write a good uh-huh. gag. And uh, I have a hard time doing that. I mean, the, there's an innocence to him and he likes animals and he's kind of a sweet guy. He's naive. So there's other things you can do with him, but the, his misinterpretation stuff. Uh, I mean, I just posted on the, Beetle Bailey website a couple weeks ago. I have a blog there to check mm-hmm. it out, BeetleBailey.com. So they're playing, this is a, a Sunday page from 65, I think. And uh, Zero gets a hit, you know, and he's running around the bases and he's just got his tongue flapping around, and his legs are churning, and he gets to home plate and he just keeps running, you know, he starts, runs around the bases another time. You know, he doesn't really know the rules of the game. Uh, so I like him a lot. Um, you know, years ago, King features back when there was the heat about Miss Buxley and the sexism and all that, the executives down there and Jay Kennedy, our comics editor decided, you know, the problem isn't with Miss Buxley is with general half track. He's the problem. So we, let's just talk to Mort and have him like court-martialed or kicked out of the army or something like that. So they called up my father and, you know, they kind of ganged up on him, you know. My father Mm -hmm. said, I guess if that's what you want us to do, then that's what we'll have to do, you know. They caught him at a weak moment, probably. Next gag conference, he comes in, Jerry and Greg and I and Mort, and and, uh, 
more informs us like so king features wants us to get rid of general half track wow we were all like oh. what <laughs> what about all the golf yeah. bags and everything you know you and you realize suddenly how important uh, uh general half track is to the whole strip sure even though he he's not necessarily you know he, there's the the ages stuff which is kind of funny but you know he just He's kind of another character that's really at the center of things. Hey, listeners, I hope you're enjoying the podcast. I hope you're enjoying today's interview. If you are and you want to show support, head on over to my Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan. At Patreon, you can contribute as little as a dollar on a regular basis to ensure the longevity of this podcast. Your support will help keep it not only commercial free, but free to the listening public. And in exchange, you'll get some pretty neat stuff. There are at least three different tiers. Each level offers its own distinct rewards. So check it out today at patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan, G-E-O-F-F-G-R-O-G-A-N. Any amount is welcome, and your support is greatly appreciated. Thanks again, and that's patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan. You know, in High and Lois, I think a real key character is the next door neighbor thirsty because he's the guy because you know high is is a good father and a good husband and he, you know right. he, he's an honest guy and he pays his taxes and he mows the lawn and and it's not there's not that much humor in all that you know you know mm-hmm. he's he's just pretty successful but thirsty is everything that high isn't you know and yeah. what that does is it provides a contrast to to high and you can work that back and forth so you know that the the magic happens between the characters in conflicts and when they're talking to each other and when they're you know they in disagreement like beetle and sarge are a lot of the times you know that's where all the gags live yeah it has to has to do with the disputes that happen between people just out of the the nature of their positions or the nature of their personalities in a way yeah. So after, you know, all of these years, I mean, uh, you're talking about, you know, the syndicate and general half track. And how do you keep writing gags that keep the strip fresh for a new audience? I mean, uh, you know, it's I mean, like you said earlier, um, sometimes you catch yourself and we did this, you know, this gag a month ago or 10 years ago, although, my gosh, you can't trying to keep track of that entire catalog can't i can imagine is daunting task but i mean how do you you know keep new, new things happening while maintaining you know the same connection to your audience that's right. been there for all this time well you know it's it's also both those two strips beetle bailey and high and lois are very different in terms yeah. of their you know um you know high and lois is observational humor it's a lot more realistic we can't have high you know stomping on chip into little pieces on the ground you know right, right. Uh, people would go nuts i mean we've had a lot of problems like if trixie is not properly strapped in her car seat or if she's on a swing and it's not the correct you know oh, safety yeah, measure yeah. stuff people go nuts and um so in high and lois uh, i remember jay kennedy used to say you have to change things so, you know, so it continues to look the same, you know, meaning yeah. that 
you know, high and lowest can't be driving it around in an old uh, Oldsmobile with wooden sides on it. You know, people are going to say this strip is just stuck in the 50s. So we've just gradually over the years changed the style of the car that they drive. Certainly now we have computers and flat screen TVs and cell phones and all the rest of it to keep it looking contemporary. But on the other hand, you know, the same family dynamics, the kids are doing their homework and High's going to work and Lois is doing housework and, you know, she's got a career as a real estate agent and, you know, they have to change Trixie's diapers and stuff that really hasn't changed that very much over the years. Well, a character like Thirsty, um, when, you know, when I think about when the strip debuted, those kinds of, I mean, Thirsty was a drinker. Right. And yeah. and there were all these jokes about his drinking or being inebriated. It's, and it was in the era of Dean Martin and Dean Martin made a lot of uh, made light of his drinking, uh, which was, you know, I guess not entirely based in fact. But um, but still, it was a very common kind of joke back in the day. I mean, is that still something, you know, I mean, is that something you've run up against now? I mean, because I think oh, yeah. attitudes about drinking are very different today. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Thirsty actually wasn't in the strip at the beginning. It was like later in the 50s. He kind of shows Mm -hmm. up, looks very different. In fact, once again, go to highandlowest.com and look at my blog there. And there's Mm -hmm. a search engine. You can type in Thirsty and scroll back. And I showed the the first time he ever appeared in the strip. I can't remember the year. I think it's like 56 or 57. And Uh there's a strip actually where, where Thirsty and Irma have a baby. Okay. But but never again, you know, they don't have any of the children of their own. I, that, that just was one strip and then never happened again. It just disappeared. Okay. Yeah. Um, we got some complaints. I remember back, I think it was in the 90s, uh, there was a, a woman at the L.A. Times, Nancy Chu, mm-hmm. who was the, the, the super political correct era, you know, where they're trying to clean up all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And they we heard that they were really complaining about thirsty because he used to have little lines in his nose yeah yeah and so we kind i remember right yeah and they, they were threatening to cancel the strip and that was a pretty big market force so we thought about it i said you know it probably is time to clean him up a little bit so uh we don't really show him smoking a cigarette all the time anymore he'll occasionally have a cigar we took the lines out of his nose mm-hmm. so we cleaned him up a little bit and they still canceled this trip. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, okay, screw you, you know. Yeah. Um, but <clears throat> Beetle, on the other hand, is a little bit, uh, you know, it's there's, it's more of a slapstick strip. You know, you, my father loves visual humor. He loves showing people getting, beating each other up and chasing each other around and mm-hmm. car crashes and action and pies thrown in faces and all that kind of slapstick stuff i think sylvan bike his old editor said you know make sure you have your character get hit over the head with something at least once a week you know (laughs) and and i think my father had that sort of midwestern sense of humor um so so beetle kind of exists in this is his own cartoon world of camp swampy and my father told this story that the, the, the army used to send them these magazines and photographs that this is the latest tank that we just developed. And, you know, one time he went on a tour of an army base and he went in the, the barracks and it was like a college dorm or something, you know. 
and each each soldier had a, maybe a room by himself or, or, or a roommate, but you know there was a regular bed in there and curtains and everything. Didn't look at all like Camp Swampy, which is actually based on an old place that my father went to when he was in basic training in the 1940s, called uh-huh. Camp Crowder in Missouri. Okay. And it was actually the camp was built during World War One, <laughs> so it's got wooden floorboards and those kind of metal you know iron rung beds and and uh so at some point my father decided you know we can't start drawing realistic tanks and jeeps and and barracks and beetle bailey you know i mean beetle bailey is beetle bailey you know so you know we still they drew you know sarge drives around and basically like a willie's jeep that you know you'd see in world war ii sure well i'm just going to say there are certain things that are archetypal uh when we think of at least I don't know, people of my generation, uh, which is maybe a little younger than you are, but um, in the ballpark. And so, you know, I think when I think about the military and I think about the army, there's certain things that are archetypes. And I suppose they all are all hangovers from World War Two. But, uh, you know, it's funny. I don't think of all the gear that they wear to Afghanistan or, you know, the, the Mideast, when I think of the army, I think of the things that Beetle and Sarge encounter in Camp Swampy. Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, we think of it as cartoon reality, you know, it's a, it's mm-hmm. a separate kind of time warp that they live in and it has nothing to do with the real army. And my father used to always say, you know, Beetle isn't really a strip about the army. It's a strip about an, an organization. It could be an office. It could be a firehouse. It could be a, you know, an office, it could be anything. And all these people have different jobs to do. And there's a hierarchy and certain people resist work and cer- certain people have authority. And um, and that's really what it's all about. It isn't necessarily, a, uh, there's it, it a little bit of commentary about the army in there, but, um, you know, it, it's, Beetle also doesn't, you know, it, doesn't hold to the calendar so much you know it doesn't always snow in the winter or you know we don't celebrate every holiday hi lois again you've got to do something on mother's day and father's day and halloween and christmas and all those kinds of dates and i think that's one thing i've brought to the strip a little more um i you know frank johnson who used to ink the strip said you know you should make it more generic because it's syndicated all over the world and they don't you know they don't celebrate thanksgiving and you know in india where the strip runs or whatever and i said no but high and lowest exist in this sort of imaginary kind of new england set you know there's Mm -hmm. foliage in the fall and snow in the winter and and it's not exactly new england but it could be and and you know they play golf in the summer and and so i i think i've made it more more connected to real time uh, Mm -hmm. since i've been writing it to today you know during this current pandemic that we're all trying to survive through i really struggled for one thing we work so far ahead like for high and lois i'm writing strips that are like end of the summer beginning of the fall now um you know i've already written the sunday page for halloween oh man so it's a totally different mindset Right. And, you know, I have to be as a writer, I have to be that much farther ahead of the artist. And then the artist has to be further ahead to get the work into King Features and time for them to distribute to all the newspapers. So there's a lot of time lag. And uh, there's actually an article in The New York Times a couple of weeks ago 
that said erroneously that most cartoonists work two weeks ahead of publication date, which is uh, true for only one cartoonist. That's Gary Trudeau. Because <laughs> he works, works more topical stuff. Four to six weeks. The artwork has to be delivered to King Features four to six weeks ahead of publication for the most part okay. by contract. So like right today, so you know the country is reopening is it going to close up again are we are there are there going to be uh you know if we show them playing golf can they be riding in a cart are they still going to be walking uh are they be, are kids going to be playing baseball is everybody going to have to be standing six feet apart right. and i started right. thinking i don't think anybody wants to see trixie with a mask you know uh, yeah. i don't think they want to see lois obsessively putting hand sanitizer before she gets out of the car you know i don't think people want to see that not in not in high and lows i mean in a strip like dunesbury it's different it's a different cartoon reality so in you know in in your reality in high and lows and beetle bailey yeah no people don't people want to see i'm um just jumping on top here but i i'm just imagining people want to see the life go on yeah as what we imagine to be normalcy right a separate reality and it's kind of an escape you know you Oh, high and yeah. lowest. They're, oh, they're, they're still, their lives are still normal. You know, that's kind of refreshing. I mean, the mm-hmm. same thing happened during World War II that I wrote about in my book. Uh, a lot of characters, cartoonists decide to have their characters enlist, you know, like Barney Google and Snuffy Smith mm-hmm. enlisted in the Navy and the Army. And Skeezix went over to North Africa and, uh, <clears throat> you know, Superman fought the Nazis and Dick Tracy was on the home front, you know hunting spies down and, mm-hmm. and uh, Nancy was collecting scrap metal. And, but Al Cap wrote a strip, which I republished in my book, which he said, I think people want to see my characters stay in dog patch mm-hmm. and just keep on going about their lives. And that will provide an escape from them for all these horrors that are happening all around the world. And there's something but, to be said for that. It's interesting to see, you know, I've seen a little reference to it a little bit in some of the other strips, like, you know, Blondie's done a couple ones. and But, you know, even there, they're not all wearing masks and, you know, talking about the coronavirus. They're, it's not very funny either, you know. Yeah, it's hard to be funny about what's going on right now. Yeah. That's for sure. I mean, it's you know, to trivializing it. Yeah. And and sometimes people would see it that way. Uh, I mean, people do, you know, the humor is something we need in order to survive, you know, in order to get through the day. We need to have that that sense of humor about life in general. But there are some things that it's very hard to uh, to make jokes about. And, uh, this yeah. seems to be one of them, you know? So, so, you know, I, I think what Al Cap was saying, I can, I, I understand that I can, I can take that to heart because people do want to escape from the troubles that they're faced with constantly. And, uh, this is, you know, in our face to all over the place, you know, today we I, I teach at a university today. We, we were having a faculty meeting about what are we doing in the fall and the monumentality of trying to think about, think through all of these different scenarios is it's mind-boggling and it's frightening and uh you know especially when you're getting on in years you know it becomes a little more uh pertinent and well anyway uh but so beetle bailey and it will remain on in camp swampy and camp swampy will not get involved in you know wars 
uh, overseas and things of that nature. Yeah, well, Beetle, Beetle yeah. Bailey's been in basic training for over 60 years. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't go to Vietnam. He didn't go. To, I mean, he started. A lot of people think of the World War II strip, but it started during Co the Korean War. Korean War. But even during the Korean War, he never went in active combat. And you know, some people said maybe you should have Chip go to Afghanistan. And I said, oh yeah, that would really be funny. You know, yeah, have I don't blown up by a you know, you know, bomb or something. You know, it's just uh, I don't know. You know, it's you know another thing. Uh, oftentimes, I'm doing interview about my my history books. People will say, well, what are some of the things that you've learned over the years about this whole art form and business and everything and. And I did focus a lot on the business in, in, you know, in my mm -hmm. history books because it is a commercial art form and it is about making money and entertaining a mass audience. And you can't you can't ignore that. You know, cartoonists aren't sort of starving, you know, self-indulgent. Like, I don't feel like being creative today. You can't do that when you have deadlines, <laughs> 365 day deadline, you know, but that that every cartoonist it does things differently. There's no rules, you know. Uh, my father's gag writing, you know, uh, system never worked for Charles Schultz. I mean, Charles Schultz always said, I don't want anybody writing gags. I don't want anybody else telling me whether my, whether my stuff is funny or not. You know, I know what it is. So he was kind of a lone wolf and that worked for him. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, there are cartoons that, that, you know, buy gags from joke writers. We don't do that. Uh, we have more of a dedicated staff, but but my father was always a very much of a collaborator. Uh, he, he he always said, as soon as he could afford it, he hired an assistant because he liked to have someone else around to bounce ideas off. That's just mm -hmm. the kind of person he was. He was very social. He was very uh, a friendly guy, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, that that worked for him. Uh, that wasn't who, who Charles Schultz was. No, very different approaches, very different approaches to the work in general, but neither one is, I mean, that doesn't preference one over the other, you know, it's, it's what's appropriate for the strip, what's appropriate for the cartoonist. And, uh, you know, I don't think there's, as you say, there's not any one way, any right way to do this. There's your way to do it. And, uh, one question that was just popping in my head is, is, uh, Sam and Silo still going? Uh, not really. Uh, I think they, I, I see it sometimes in the paper, you know, I think for a long time they've been running, uh, they've been doing reruns. Mm -hmm. okay. uh, Gary passed away before my dad did. So he's been gone. Right. And the strip kind of ended. Yeah. Even when he was doing it, I think they were sort of just cutting and pasting and sending in old stuff. Oh, okay. I think it's All in right. a, a handful of papers, maybe some foreign papers. Yeah, but it pretty much ended when, when Jerry passed away. We haven't really even talked all that much about, you know, your dad or, or uh, you know, we did, of course, he had to come into the conversation somewhere, but life with your dad and all of that. But still, uh, I mean, my gosh, it's been fascinating and yeah. terrific. And, you know, hey, if you ever want to talk comics, give me a call. <laughs> where, where do you live? I live near Binghamton, New York. Um okay. Uh, I'm pretty familiar with, I mean, I work in Long Island, I go back and forth, uh, but near, you know, Binghamton University and um, just outside of there in a kind of rural community. Um, wow. I'm familiar with Westport, as I said. Uh, my wife comes from originally Pound Ridge, New York, which is right okay. across the border from New Canaan. Okay. 
And my folks lived there for a couple of years. So, uh, you know, when I was in my early 20s, uh, that's where I met my wife and um, spent a lot of time in New Canaan and that in Stanford and all those areas of Connecticut. Yeah, we live actually in Silvermine, which is. Oh, yeah. We live in the Wilton corner, but I walk down my driveway and out down the road and I'm in New Canaan. And then we used to live in Bedford. Oh, yeah. Okay. And Monday for Memorial Day, I got my old Volvo sports car out. My wife and I drove up through Pound, up through New Canaan and Pound Ridge to Bedford to see our old house where we used to live. Oh, wow. Um, you teach, it, you nice. teach at a university? Yeah, I teach at Delphi University in Garden City, New York. Um, I teach a lot of stuff about comics and illustration and uh, I'm a bit of a cartoonist and whatnot myself and um, did a strip on Go Comics for a bunch of years. And anyway, uh, so, yeah, that's where I teach. And I commute back and forth about once a week, although now and maybe in the fall, too, I'll be teaching online uh, for a while. Um, so, you know, it's it's been it's great. It's a great opportunity i've been there a long time 20 years got tenure and all of that uh tenured cartoonist though it's kind of a, a rarity there are not too many of them um <laughs> yeah but you know um but you know that area new canaan and, and pound ridge and bedford i have really fond memories my wife and i got married uh in katona uh in the you know backyard of our landlords uh with the justice of the peace and it was really uh, really fond memories of of yeah. that area i actually speaking of silver mine um i used to do drawing classes at um the silver mine art guild uh, yeah. I used to go there to you know do figure drawing yeah my my studio was across the street for 25 years above the silver mine market oh a okay. little store across from the guild yeah and also, <laughs> my wife and I got married at Waveney Park in, in, with the one where Dick Brown was the. Uh, the oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. On the yeah. Ceremony. That's great. Uh, it's a small world. Anyway. Yeah. Well, Brian, I'm going to let you go. It's been really wonderful talking to you. It's been a, a thrill and it's been an education and it's been there's so many things to talk to you about. And uh, it's just wonderful to have had you on the program to talk about. 70 years worth of comics and and the history of comics and all of these exhibitions it's just been great thank you so much yeah. for your time yeah no i as you can tell i enjoy talking about it and uh you know i i have some friends we just call each other up every once in a while even even somebody like art spiegelman would just talk on the phone for 45 minutes about <laughs> barney google or something you know oh, fabulous, <laughs> and, uh, so it's fun to talk about it and it's a lot of fun to talk to brian walker especially about comics and especially about Beetle Bailey, High and Lois, Mort Walker, Dick Brown, Stan Drake, the Billy Ireland Museum, Masters of American Comics. My gosh, how many things can we go down the list and name that, that have been so formative and so important? Thank you again, Brian. Thank you. It, it was a real pleasure and an honor for me to have you on the show. So that will do it for this episode. Episode 50 is in the can. Now it's on to episode 51 and a new era of Blockhead. Uh, Blockhead continues. 
And it continues by celebrating the 70th anniversary of Charles Schultz's Peanuts this October with friend of the show, very special guest, Lex Fajardo, who will come back on to talk about a brand new book celebrating Peanuts, The Peanuts Book, which is a book about the art of the comic strip, the art of Charles Schultz's great comic strip. Peanuts, and uh, and we'll talk to Lex about his own work, which is moving forward. A brand new book coming out from Lex as well. So that is first on the agenda here in October to celebrate this wonderful comic strip, which has meant so much to all of us and so much to so many others. Uh, they're just wow. How many of us would not be cartoonists if it wasn't for Peanuts, right? Uh, it's just been such a, an important and integral part of our lives our lives as cartoonists, as has the work of Mort Walker and Brian Walker and the Walker family uh, meant so much to us. And that, too, is celebrating the 70th anniversary. Beetle Bailey, 70 years old. So these two great, iconic comic strips celebrating that anniversary together. It's just wonderful to be able to bring and celebrate those events with you through this show and through the guests we have on the program and uh, so it means a lot to me and I, I hope it means as much to you follow me on Instagram at Grogan Jeff G-R-O-G what the hell <laughs> see I get that far and then I forget G-R-O-G-A-N-G-E-O-F-F and I, I'm terrible about posting on it actually if you want to keep up with my comics work I've been uh, posting on another uh, Instagram site at Spiking the Lens. Spiking the Lens is its own little page. And I'm working on a comic book version of it now. And uh, it's very different and very exciting. And, uh, and that project is, we'll see where it goes. It's, it's really very different. So I'm excited about that, but I'll be posting some stuff from it eventually on the uh, Instagram feed. So check it out. Uh, my Patreon page. Uh, wow. Um, it's growing. <laughs> it's growing. And I am so thankful uh, for the supporters I have there. And so uh, that Patreon page is patreon.com slash uh, Jeff Grogan, right? <laughs> slash, uh, slash, <laughs> slash Jeff Grogan. Uh, last time I said Grogan Jeff. See, I can't even can't even get my Patreon page when it's going to do me some good. Don't do as I do, do as I say, right? Uh, those of you who are trying to build a career, <laughs> don't follow my, don't follow in my footsteps. Uh, Patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan, G-E-O-F-F-G-R-O-G-A-N. I am grateful for your support, whatever, whatever you can see to float the way of this podcast is greatly appreciated. And thank you again to Ray Rapizzi Jr. for your support. It means a lot to me, and uh, what a great surprise it was to me to open that up and see your name there. So wonderful. Okay, everybody, I'm going to let you go, and I'm going to go back to work, whatever it is that I'm doing with the rest of my, my Saturday here. Uh, thank you all for listening, and um, be well, be safe, be happy practice your social distancing because it's keeping that thing at bay right and uh, I will see you next time when we celebrate 70 years of Charles Schultz's Peanuts okay thanks for listening mm-hmm.